Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Machination Log. We've got a threefer for another book club coming in here. Book club. We got Mitchell. Hello. We got Nicole. Here. And we got David. Brian claimed he was going to be here. He is not. I didn't. I thought he said go fuck yourselves or something when we said we were reading this book. That's entirely possible. Okay. Mitchell, you picked this book, so you get to intro it. What are we reading? We're reading uh, Open in Autobiography by Andre Agassi, a tennis player. Yeah. Which tennis player? What kind of tennis player is this person? He is uh, considered one of the uh, greatest American tennis players, probably one of the overall 15 to 20 greatest tennis players in history. He's top 20. Yeah, definitely top 20, maybe top 15. So why this one? Why of all the sports memoirs? We were talking before we started this. Um, very little sports memoir readership in this particular circle here. Yeah. I read one some time ago, and I can't even remember who it was by. I just remember having attempted the flavor of a sports memoir to see what it was all about. Uh, Nicole, you haven't read one? I've read two other ones just besides kidding. this. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Mitchell, you, this is your first dive into? Well, you said half of Infinite Jest doesn't count, so yes. <laughs> it doesn't, no. It's no, not it's... a sports memoir. Yeah. Even though David Foster Wallace, uh, shameless plug, wrote what is basically the the pondering on memoirs yeah. that mm -hmm. prevented me from looking any farther into them. Well, no, I mean, he covers everything you need to know about this. In, in a tennis, about a, uh, and he uses a tennis memoir as yeah. an example, too, which I think feels appropriate yeah. for this. And he wrote that, uh, that article about Federer that gets shared. Oh, frequently. yes, because Federer sees time and space differently than yeah. you. Have you read that string theory? I have a yeah. copy of it. Okay. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah. I've, I've, I've read every nonfiction thing DFW's ever written. I just can't stand his fiction. Okay. Um, but no, he wrote uh, How Tracy Austin Broke My Heart, which has been mentioned on this podcast several times. It's a very, very good interrogation of why sports people can't talk about it. it there's a reason why sports people are media trained, and it is not just to keep ESPN uh, announcers guessing about what to talk about. It's because they just don't understand how to elucidate what the experience that they are uh, that they are feeling, the experience they are generating. Like they they are incapable of expressing it. That's one interesting thing about Agassiz. He was very much not media trained. <laughs> he just kind of faked it as he went along, compared to like Federer, who is well, Federer. Federer and Nadal like, are just wow, like Federer a totally and, yeah. different breed. I. I could have, I almost like wrote something about Nadal this week. Um, he just won the U.S. Open. Oh boy, and did he! And uh, he's six match. months away from surpassing Federer <clears throat> in most Grand Slams of all time. I I feel a hundred percent confident he will do it. Um, the French Open. Well, the French Open is coming like up. A ninety percent shot yeah, of winning it. Statistically, right he yeah. won't lose it. Yeah. So, and then that's all he needs. Mm -hmm. And. It's yeah. a classic muscle over mind story. I can appreciate. Well, you know, he's a he's he's you know, I don't want to say he's a simple person, but you know, he's an unencumbered person. Like he's focused on the ball and he just gets it. The problem with Agassi, or I guess maybe this is why Agassi appealed to people's. Agassi was more of like an encumbered person. Like he he was not a consistent individual. His play was up and down. His like image, how he portrayed himself, like everything was all over the place. He was basically an emotional mess. Of a human being for most of his career, um, I mean, you could yeah. say it's because of its father. You could say it's not. Be you know, there's there's oh, a I, lot of reasons. That I, I point think there's to a variety it. of things yeah. that yeah. tie into it. I mean, that's 
that is the one thing that makes this memoir. I mean, I, I, it, it's not as if Agassi cracked the code or his ghostwriter, apparently Nicole, found. He, yeah, this was not written by Agassi. No? Okay. Yeah, his ghostwriter did agree up. to not take any credit, like he wanted to give Agassi credit <laughs> for Extremely it. Extremely There's no indication that it was ghostwritten anywhere But in yeah, the this was this was ghostwritten. Agassi has an eighth grade education. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it seemed unlikely yeah. given how well and there are a few. There are a few, you know, big words in this book, so. <laughs> I assume David appreciated the fact that there are no quotation marks. What? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, and it... it it feels like it's written by an institutional writer, mm-hmm. which is apparently what it's. I some, think it's like a New York Times writer or something it, like it, that. It feels like it because it's it's got a very consistent prosody to it with the use of similes. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of incongruous metaphors, which I I expect from a journalist type. Yeah. So that's kind of what I expected. Agassi didn't strike me as that kind of person. Again, he strikes me as a total emotional mess. Yeah. Which yeah. we'll get into shortly because yeah. that's that's mostly – like this book, I, I don't know what you guys want to focus on. I mostly, within the context of this book, want to focus on the moral hazard endemic to Andre Agassi's life as someone who hates tennis right. but plays it longer than anyone had to date in a professional yeah. capacity yeah. despite hating everything about it apparently. Yeah. I, I wanted to bring yeah. more of the cultural context because I was there at the end of Agassiz. Like, literally, I was, I was there, like, physically in person <laughs> um, at the end. Did and, you ever watch any of his actual matches yeah, in person? Yeah, okay. Um, okay. So I started watching tennis in 2005 uh, just in time to see the rise of Nadal. And um, I was at the 2005 U.S. Open where I – and I had reading this book was fun because I had to look up all the dates of all the stuff I yeah. had seen. But I saw him play at that one. And then I had tickets uh, to the main stadium the year afterwards, which was his last U.S. Open. And I could have been in the stadium for his physical last match, but I was in the the stadium next door watching Nadal because that's the reason I watch tennis. Yeah. Um, so, but, like, the whole uh, Flushing Meadows shut down, like, when he lost that match. So, like, everyone was aware of it. Like, the whole st- – everyone shut down. They had, like, ev- you know, the whole thing on the on all the TVs. So, like, everyone had to stop and reflect on what Agassi had brought to American tennis. And uh, what people did not know – well, nobody knew except me. I knew because I was already <laughs> there to see Nadal – People didn't realize that that would be the death of American tennis and that they needed to move the fuck on. It would take a little longer for them to realize that, but I, I knew that in 2005. There was still Roddick. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's, it's tough being Roddick in a Federer-Nadal world. It is. <laughs> you can't just serve your way to victory, it turns you, you, out. Yeah, yeah. Mitchell, what did you come to this book for? Or actually, that's the wrong question. What do you want to talk about in this book now that you've read it? Well, I uh, one of the questions I had was, do you guys think that Agassi actually hates tennis? I get a strong impression that he... Yeah, David wants to discuss this, I think. Yeah, this is the thing I wanted. That's why I... Yeah. If, if you want to talk about anything else, you should state it now. Because <laughs> that's, okay. that's like the emphasis of everything I quoted. It's yeah. like I, okay. I am fascinated with the degree to which this man thinks he's a rebel. All right. Well, before we get to that, then, I, I think... Uh, um, I appreciated kind of the, the history 
um, the tennis history. The yeah. tennis history that you get from it going back to the, the well, he does it. Does, he crosses over the Sampras era, which yep. was an important era in American tennis, yep. too. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he starts uh, the first professional he played was Courier yeah. when he was four. And then he goes to, to beating Baghdadis in 2006, playing Fendel and Federer in that generation. So, yep. yeah, he was around a long time. Um, I mean, he was around longer than anybody professionally was up to till that point. That point no, yeah, Courier played long. Courier retired when he was thirty nine, I think. Okay, so, so um, one person. So yeah, but so so that's the thing. So he had broken a lot of records. But Courier wasn't nearly play. as good like later in his career. As yeah, he was. Um, so Federer and Dahl basically just like eradicated that you can't play yeah. in your thirties. Um, like, and Djokovic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, Djokovic, Djokovic will prove us. The brilliant thing about Djokovic is you have, like, you know, Nadal and Federer who are just, they just, like, are tennis. Like, you can't get any better than him. And then you have one guy who's underneath them who, he's, like, the only guy that's willing to work hard enough to, like, find a way to beat these two people. Like, no one else wants to suffer enough on the court to figure out how to beat them except Joker. So in time, because he's a few years behind them, he might actually surpass both of them. And that's just from having to elevate his level so high because yeah. of Federer and Nadal. What permitted that? Like, why Why all of a sudden is it possible that there are two tennis players who are just going to be number one and number two, and it's, I assume number three for... It's three. Djokovic, Federer, and Nadal are yeah. the three best players of all time. But they're And they're all old. Like, yeah. why, why is that now possible? Um, I think one thing is... is Modern medicine is better, so people can stay healthier later in their life. I think also there, there's more money in in it, so that they've um, they've invested more in in personal trainers, and Agassi did as well, and he yeah. talks about that in his book, and that's probably a big thing that helped him is having Gil. Oh, he hit um, he hits that over the head in the book, yeah. like his entourage like think, of people. I don't think a lot of other players in the '90s had that, but now not to that extent. I don't think. But now it's something that everybody, all the top players, have personal trainers and nutritionists and everything to to keep yeah. them healthy. And it's I, the same reason Brady is playing at 42 in the NFL. Yeah. It's it was I mean was tennis not sponsored by Rolex back in the '80s? Like, uh, I it was still sponsored pretty well. Yeah. I don't I don't know because I didn't live that era if it was sponsored that well one funny thing about it is Federer's style of play seemed to lend itself like the fact that he has played well into his late 30s doesn't seem like a surprise because his game was not like it was like a very fluid game you know he wasn't like running got, down and pounding yeah everything. he's got an economical style yeah so it made sense that he would maybe be able to carry that style for mm-hmm. maybe longer than a lot of people what's amazing is that nadal has made it out of his 30s because yeah. his style is so aggressive and like so aggressive on his joints that when he started people thought his career would be done by the time he was 27 and he's actually won more slams in his 30s than any anyone else to date as of that US Open so the mm-hmm. it, the oddest thing is that Nadal has been able to have a very prolonged career like the fact yeah so it has to be something other than just you know physical like i think medicine food like physical therapy, recovery. I think all that stuff is getting better because it makes sense that Federer could do it. It doesn't make any sense that Nadal's able to do this. Well, I think all three of them, Djokovic, Federer, and Nadal, are 
incredible athletes. Like they, yeah, they're better athletes than Agassi was. Agassi oh yeah, is not a great athlete. Yeah, honestly. Um, he she, was taught how to do one thing. Well, that, that's is return was, a ball. He didn't even wasn't even a good server. He knew how to <laughs> return the ball. I mean, it, it was weird though because I I get the impression that Nadal follows in at least one thing that Agassi seemed to have brought, which is just a general. I mean, and it, the way they manifest is equivalent. Where they come from is maybe different. But the rage that Agassi uses, that he channels in order to win, is the kind of thing that requires an athletic exertion. Um, and it's possible in the presence of more modern medicine, given that Agassi was one of the first people that was winning into his 30s, is that that kind of exertion in the presence of whatever we happen to have now and what is presumably improved over time uh, actually inoculates you from the effects that would cause you to like dilapidate faster. Like at some point, I can I can imagine a scenario where a a player has such an expressly mental game, mm-hmm. a game that is so centered not around fitness and raw strength, but around technical ability, craftiness. Yeah, that, that it actually becomes a crutch, and it actually compromises their ability to play into the future because. As their athleticism degrades, their technical skill just simply cannot keep them on the field mm. anymore. Because there's there's got to be a baseline. Like yeah, you if, have to be able to hit back an 130 mile an hour serve, mm-hmm. or you just can't play. Yeah, if I thought about that hard enough, I could probably come up with a good example just, of that. I'm but. just like Agassi, because Agassi is in this parallel camp. Like he's in he's mm-hmm. he was along now with Courier. One of very few people who well, started playing. It was Connors who long. played late, oh, not Courier. Courier actually yeah, retired four years before Andre. He yeah, was one right. of the people that that popped out early. Connors played. Connors what? was a mental game. Like that guy just didn't want to quit, and he yeah. was a big asshole. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, I was which, ask. which shows up in the book that he yeah. was an asshole. Yeah. And then, Ag- but see, Agassi credits the fact that he was literally so stiff that he didn't put any kind of weird exertion on his joints but it did end up having its own problems later on he accredited that for him being able to play so long i don't know if i agree with that because i'm in the i i think that like stretching is better for you than not stretching <laughs> but i mean i guess i could be wrong it's, i am not a sports weirdest debates yeah in sports yeah like you know yeah. i'm not a physio you know so i I could be wrong, but I just feel like, you know, being more stretched out is better than being so stiff. I mean, I've seen Agassi walk between points towards the end there. It was painful. Like, he literally hobbled to his chair between games. It it was awkward to watch. He spends the whole first chapter basically complaining about how broken he is. Oh, no, and you could see it, but, like, when he played, he played fine. Like, he he could get it going for the points, but he looked like an old man hobbling between points. I think uh, it helped. He does have very compact strokes if you yeah. compare the players now. Like his forehand and backhand are both uh, pretty short swings. And I didn't look he up. Is really he a low center of gravity kind of guy? Um, I don't know how he tall he is. He doesn't really crouch that low. He okay. kind of stands up. So, yeah, there's not a lot of like See how rotation. Tall he was. Not a lot of core rotation, yeah. which helps, I think, considering his back. He, and he also didn't have a slice game at all. 
Not or as, not a slice not game. Um, he didn't have like a spin game like Nadal. Like no, he was, was more of a flat. flat. Yeah, he had pretty flat. Yeah, and he his big thing and and the reason why he was successful for a long time and he did put more spin in his game later and he talks about that. With yeah, the with the with not, but that was um, another that was a technology yeah. upgrade. Really, it wasn't yeah. his play as much. But he hit. He hit took the ball really early, which a lot of mm-hmm. players don't do. He took the ball on the rise. Most and that's, players like to take it. When and it's that's an intimidation tactic. That's yeah. a mental tactic as well. Um, and, uh, yeah, short, compact strokes. So he could just hit the ball back early and uh, gives the other player less time to react, um, which is be- effective. Sure. <laughs> it works. But there, uh, there has to be there has to be a set of compromises in hitting the ball that early. Yes. I mean, it, it has to reduce your options as far as hitting. Because the reason you hit the ball as late as possible is to increase the range of possibilities. Yeah. So, it's hard. You need a really good reaction time to do it. Yeah. And you're, you're, that was one of the reasons why you had to hit with compact strokes. You can't take like a big wind up if you're doing that. Yeah, you don't have time. Yeah. Well, and so the way, another way that that mentally that affects the person on the other side of the net is because then what you're doing is you're setting the pace of the ball. So instead of uh, your opponent being able to set their own rhythm, like you're kind of stopping it early and, uh, you know, forcing them to play at your pace by taking it early. And that also becomes part of the mental game of just trying to throw the opponent off their game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's bringing it into your version, like because I it, having more options is only useful if you have the ability to exploit them. If the yeah. if your opponent is not used to playing at a higher tempo and you're used to catching the ball, I mean, it, it, the reason why he plays that way is made immediately apparent within the book. His dad had an apparatus, yeah, that shot that, balls at him. That shot balls at him as fast as it could get away with, and his dad was constantly trying to get him to hit the ball as early as possible. Yeah, so it, he was indoctrinated in that style. Yeah, and that was his game. I mean, yeah. that's that's like playing. I mean, in tennis, it doesn't quite work out the same way. I, I assume tennis is one of those games where half the players are left-handed because not half. No, um, Nadal revolutionized playing yeah. left-handed. There was a few of there them before others. there, but Nadal. I mean, McEnroe is one of the best players ever. He was left-handed. Yeah. Well, so. but what I mean by revolutionized the left-handed game is that Nadal is not left-handed. But he is ambidextrous. Well, but he he strategically learned to play on his left uh, as as a strategic advantage. Yeah, Yeah, because in in most sports you see they're either they're either um, complicitly or adversarially um, left or right handed. Yeah, you know every golfer is right handed, um, and half of fencers are left handed because if you don't understand technically how to fight. A left-handed opponent, you will lose to them, which is why in fencing there are so many of them. Okay, and I would assume tennis is in the. It's not quite comparable to that. It's not like boxing because most of the technique I assume is the same. Well, yeah, in um, yeah, in boxing, in boxing it has the yeah. match. It, it's really with the matchup with your opponent, and there was a lot less a lot less uh, southpaws in like boxing and combat sports until recently. People started either switching stances or doing things like Nadal, which is using the left more um, because they know it's, it puts their opponent at a disadvantage because they don't play yeah, left-handed yeah. opponents as frequently. The dynamics are different. There, yeah. are, there are two advantages to being left-handed in tennis. One is spin. Um, you get uh, lefty spin going across. And the advantage of that is that most players are right-handed, so people aren't used to the ball turning that way when they play a left-handed player. And the other advantage is on the serve, um, because it's easier to serve across your body 
Um, so um, if you're a left-handed server, you're serving across your body on the ad side, which is more often when you win closeout games or save breakpoints. Um, so that's the, the other big advantage to being left-handed. But I don't think that there's a disproportionate number of left-handed players. Like offhand, I think Nadal's the only one in the top 20. That's possible, and it's it's right, again right in, box, in boxing. It matters more because there are there are um, the shots there, that are open are to you are different. Complementary yeah. disadvantages in tennis, whereas in boxing, your opponent has to completely reconsider the way they're fighting. Well, yeah, because when they're what, yeah, because what what they're going to be blocking is going to be yeah. di- totally Where, different. Whereas than. in tennis, you're not hitting across your body on your first serve, mm-hmm. so you're mm-hmm. at an inherent disadvantage. So it's possible it balances out. It's like pitching too. In baseball, teams need to have a certain number of lefty pitchers because it's just a different look that they yeah. can bring to. Uh, yeah, it's just uh, disruptive. It's just yeah. it's just a question of what that what that balance is. Mm-hmm. Um, I have no idea why we ended up on that tangent. But no, well, I mean, we're just talking about tennis now because other than that, we have to talk about how whiny Agassi was. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> talk about his Iranian dad. Yeah. I did watch. Uh, I watched Trophy two, Kid. Two he was matches. a Trophy Kid. Oh, yeah. Well, I watched I watched parts of three matches. I watched the the Baghdadis match. Yeah, the last set of that match. I remember watching that. Um, which that last set is pretty intense. Mm-hmm. Um, I watched the uh, highlights of the the Courier match in the uh, '91 French Open final. That would be fun. I which he seen lost. That. It was yeah. his first final, and he lost. Uh, yeah, well, he Courier. lost his first three slams. Yeah. yeah, three slam finals. And then I've watched the uh, the 2005 uh, Federer. Federer. Yeah, yeah, I remember match. watching that one yeah. too. No, uh, Agassi, if nothing else, makes it up on the volume. Yeah. Like, I mean, a- as a direct consequence of the length of time he played, because uh, he has multiple absolute breakdowns. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah, that whole that, he doesn't play. That whole Brooke Shields period, mm-hmm. it, it, it was terrible for his tennis. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Brooke and Shields. he's also, it's funny, I mean, like, I relate to it in a way because, you know, if I had, like, pursued anything like this, like, dance or anything like this, um, because, like, you know, I didn't have pushy parents, but I also didn't have parents that, like, kind of explained the scope of, like, how to maneuver around that kind of world. Um, And I was a very emotional kid, but, you know, I guess You just didn't hate dancing enough. I, there was points where I, I thought I, I maybe did, but like I understand that like that back and forth. Well, I would have liked to actually maybe like dancing more by understanding like what was involved, but I, I never quite did. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh well, hindsight's twenty twenty. But you, you know, like Agassi, like every every other year, he's like, I am quitting. I am this the whole goddamn time, and I get it because if I was an angsty teenager playing like a sport with that much pressure, I probably would have been like that too. Like I would have been like one minute, I would have been like, fuck this. Like yeah. I'm just throwing all my stuff in the fire and I'm, you know, and then the next week you're back doing it again. Um, but it, it took until he was about 29, I think, to just get over it and realize that he, he doesn't know how to do anything else. He's never done anything else. And he's he's making a decent living at tennis. More than decent. Like, <laughs> you know, he can support his entourage. Like, what more does he want? Yeah. Um, and that's all he wants. Yeah, he, that's his whole life. Yeah, he comes to a realization about what he actually wants out of any of this, which helps quite a bit. Yeah. Centering him. 
It's interesting, um, the fact that he never brought up to the media that he disliked tennis, and you compare it to somebody like Kyrgios. Mm-hmm. Now, I think, is, yeah, I think a good old Kyrgios. It's pretty obvious he's a spoiled rich kid. Yeah, he's well, he's been on record saying that he doesn't particularly care yeah. for tennis. And There's been a lot of people. Uh, I loved Marat Safin, um, but he wasn't there for the love no. <laughs> of tennis. He was there because it made him a decent living, and it mm-hmm. made him high enough profile to get a job in Russian politics when he retired. Yeah. I still oh, only know the best. I still only know one thing about Safin. There's like a, which is that he destroyed a Perrier crate at some point at the French Open. Which yeah, they should have yeah. fucking paid Perrier. He Perrier should have paid him for that because that, that water cooler is in the like tennis hall of fame. Now. Yeah, like that. Yeah, he's also like, mooned. You're welcome. Mooned umps before. Yeah, yeah. I think it's. Uh, I think it's Galbus who is a player who uh, just had a rich family. And no, there's a lot of people. Yeah, it's just like gentleman tennis players. It's like yeah. I'm rich and I need something to do during the day, and I get mm-hmm. to travel a lot if I play tennis. Well, th- so you can and you can make a decent living as like a top twenty player. That, that's yeah. what well, I was. Top twenty, you make a good living. You make top, a really good. Top living. hundred is decent, and then after hundred is where you really struggle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was I was looking into the numbers on that. I mean, once you account for the fact that you do need personal training and travel and all the rest of that stuff yeah. being no out expenses of top expenses are expenses hard. are high yeah. uh to to do tennis but th- that's why i was curious with the cuz i mean now they're sponsored by all the same people that sponsor f1 and th- that's in my mind like tennis is the non-motor analog to formula 1 like everyone who drives a formula 1 car is the heir apparent to a massive fortune of It is very, kind. it's very, it's, yeah, it's very similar to that. And even if you, just watching a tennis match, it's, it's so funny because, you know, I watch UFC now because I realized that instead of having people hit balls to, to, you know, conquer, you know, your competitive <laughs> thirst, you can just watch people hit each other directly. So I, I like, That's like the exact like opposite the, of. Yeah. So I like the, the dist, I like the distillation of that, but. If you watch a UFC match and you watch a tennis match, the commercials and the type of people those two events are advertising to you are night and day. Tennis, <laughs> tennis, all of the commercials are for investment banks. Yep. That's yeah. investment banks, Vice Mercedes, United Rolex, Arab, Rolex Arab, uh, Arab private Emirates, jets, Emirates. yeah, Emirates, and yeah. Swiss chocolate. Yep. <laughs> like, like that is some high roller BS. Yeah. Well, I, and everybody who's not at the U.S. Open is on one of the 20 indie tracks mm-hmm. uh, waiting for cars to run. Yeah. Like that's, uh, those are the two sports. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think there are two types of professional tennis players. They're the ones who come from very well-off families who had access to tennis. That, because that they, helps. Yeah. Um, and then there are the ones that come from a poorer background whose parents just like pushed them into it. Well, become, because their parents, which is Agassi, because their parents like saw it as a way to reach that yeah. kind of well, it's, level it's of money. not just Agassi. It's also like the Williams sisters oh, yeah. and, and Lindsay Davenport and and, uh, and Steffi Graf. Oh, yeah, Agassi good old Steffi. She was good. Um, and even Nadal, but he seems mostly well-adjusted because of it. But he, he's been playing tennis since he was like three. Yeah, and he and was coached by, by Uncle Tony yeah. until Uncle Tony retired. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it was a family affair for Nadal too. Like I said, he just didn't seem as mentally tormented as is Nadal. He was yeah. just like, okay, here's my game. I train with Uncle Tony every day and I win the matches. Like, yep. that's it. That's it. There's there's no other <laughs> he complication like, here. He likes fishing and tennis. <laughs> yeah. It's a very uncomplicated life. He lives life. in a fucking he's Mediterranean been, island. He's engaged to the 
same person he's been dating since high school. Who looks like, like it could be his sister. So yeah. Same gene pool. Um, yeah. Agassi did not pull that off. No, no, no. I, I, okay, so one of the cutesy things about this book is both of the, you know, famous people that Agassi was involved which, with, which is Brooke Shields and um, good old Streisand. Steffi Groff. Oh, and Barbara Streisand. Well, yeah, that was... He didn't. He didn't almost marry her, though. Um, <laughs> you know, there's different points in the book where you know either a friend of his or something like just directly portends that he is going to end up with this person in the future. Like his friend makes a joke that he's going to marry Brooke Shields, and then Brooke Shields has a picture of Steffi Groff on her fridge because she wants legs like Steffi Groff, and then he goes on to marry her. I didn't know. I thought that was just kind of like cutesy stuff like that seemed almost a little ridiculous and just kind of like written in for just to make the story sound more alluring. The thing is, it's not as if it's not as if those things couldn't have happened. It's just that over the course of your life. Yeah. He probably ran into a reference to Brooke Shields. 80 times before he actually... No, I mean, Brooke Shields was was the thing. She, like, she's she an was, extremely high-profile yeah. model actor. Yeah, so, like, yeah she it, was, it she was hot in the 80s, so people wanted to date her. Yeah, so yeah. the fact that there's a cute reference to, like, Gil Sam, or I forget who it was. It was, was. one of his friends, like I AJ think, like or Perry something. or yeah. PJ Mentioning or JP Brooke, or Philly It's entirely or, possible it happened. Like, yeah. of course. It, it, yeah. it, but it probably also happened in a bunch of other ways. Like, every time they're I'm talking... Sure other people mentioned other people. People Other people too date. that just he never... didn't date. Yeah, yeah exactly. I'm, I'm sure that I'm sure that actually yeah. happened. That's one of those things that's true. That that is irrelevantly true. Like yeah. it's just it. You know, it's like the fact. It's it, it would be like winning the lottery and noticing in the past that someone had joked that you would win the lottery. Like <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, of course. Like <laughs> yeah, that that's just. That's probably true, but it's irrelevant that it's true. Like, yeah. Marrying Brooke Shields and Steffi Graf is kind of like winning the lottery twice. Yeah, yeah it is. Like it is. Yeah. Having yeah. a dad that hates you, it's like winning the lottery. <laughs> yeah. But, like, you know, it worked out for him in the end. All that kicking and screaming. Like, he's he's pretty comfortable. Yeah. I think he's made peace with himself. Yeah. <laughs> I don't point. know. Like I said, I don't feel sorry for him no. at all. Oh, no, no, you no. Know? no. I, don't, I don't feel sorry for him whatsoever. I'm just not, again, I'm just not sure what to take away from it. Because no. surely there are another 5,000 children who have a psychotic dad who puts a tennis net six inches higher than regulation and tells them to hit a million balls over it a year. Yeah. And they just don't go anywhere. Well, this is, and what is that? Is that like the survivorship bias? Yeah, it's called survivorship bias. Yeah, like, I mean, this is the story of, like you Talk, said. Speaking of the lottery. Yeah, yeah, this is the story of many, of many kids. It's just that most of them, yeah, don't make most it this far. Most of them far. can't win eight majors. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and, and Agassi, even Agassi himself, we already alluded to it. Agassi breaks down. It's not entirely emotional breakdowns. Like half the time it's emotional breakdowns. Half the time he suffers like a major physical fault and has to just stop playing for yeah. a while. Yeah. And he just got lucky enough that none of them permanently impaired him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's why, uh, you know, that's why Stephanie Groff quit because she was, I mean, if you think Agassi was good, she was evidently was like she was a destroyer. Yeah. Um, Stephanie and she had an injury and had because she was she wasn't very late in her career she was only like mid to late 20s. 29 or something Tw- yeah. yeah 
and she had to quit because of just a career-ending injury. Well, and and that, she was she was fucking light years better than him. If you haven't seen it, um, her match against Serena Williams and the is it a Indian Wells? Well, it's uh, Indian Wells '99. Oh wow! So it's like okay. the end of oh, Steffi Graf's so, career, the beginning and then of Serena. Serena would have been it's like amazing. Would have been like seventeen or something. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's it's just one of those weird quandaries that you have to ponder, especially in Agassi's case, where if he was not getting the money, he would have gotten nothing, nothing. out of tennis because he yeah. didn't enjoy it. He despised his parents until he was actually like well, like it, and he was he's he wasn't stable enough to coach because being able to no. teach is a totally different thing than being able to play. No, as he permanently decries, he has no other skill. You gotta no. you gotta pound Bud Lights like. Uh, <laughs> Like BG. Brad Gilbert. <laughs> good old BG. Like the only, and he's not even good at rebelling. Like this is like. Oh no, he's he, terrible at yeah. it. Yeah, like he he's talking about when he said. Uh, well, he the, said he wasn't trying to rebel. He was just trying to make an identity for himself. I he begged, was just a confused kid. I yeah. beg to differ. Um, he said the media considered him a rebel, no, but no, he no, never that's, considered that's once himself he's pro. a pro. I'm talking about when he's at uh, Botellieri yeah. or however you pronounce Voluntary. that. Voluntary. Voluntary Academy. He, he's. He whines for a chapter about, I dyed my hair pink, I drank gallons of whiskey, I pierced my ears. Shit, I'd, like, he does every kind of meaningless rebellion there is to do in a camp where if he stopped playing tennis, that would, it would be over. Yeah. Like, he does, he, he doesn't even understand what rebellion actually is. Like, and this is the, this, the creepiest thing in the book to me is, I'm going to see if I can find this line. Here we go. Um. At the 1990 French Open, this is, quote, I make headlines by wearing pink. It's not on the front page of the sports pages, and in some cases, the news pages. It is. Or it is on the front page, yeah. unquote, <laughs> to re-quote. Agassi in the pink, specifically pink compression pants under acid watch shorts. I tell reporters, it's not pink, it's technically hot lava. I'm astonished by how much they care. I'm astonished by how much I care that they get it right. <laughs> this line... <laughs> Uh, even though it is ghostwritten, it's not specifically Agassi saying this. This is a really important tell because he spends more than a chapter of this book decrying the fact that a canon ad where he said image is everything haunted him for a while. Yeah. And the problem is it's completely justified because he acts like someone who cares about that shit. Enough so that, okay, like I said, I... When I was a kid, I was aware of who Agassi was, but I did not follow tennis. And that was because of his hair. Here, the whole fucking time, his hair was a goddamn hairpiece. Like, mm -hmm. that's how much his fucking image was important to him, that he would play tennis with a goddamn hairpiece so that people could identify with that mullet look. And it was, it was a thing. I had a teacher in eighth grade, pictures of Andre Agassi around the entire room. And then he started dating Brooke Shields, and him shaving his head was like right in the same time period. And then she had a, a specific hatred of Brooke Shields for, um, you know, forcing Andre into shaving his head. But no one knew that he was wearing hair pieces this whole time. But that's how much his image meant to him, that he would do something that fucking ridiculous. Yeah. And it's, it's funny because without noticing this, like, because he, he does a decent job of holding up the facade that he really doesn't care and that this is the press's problem. But it's clearly not. But, it, but he does care. He, he does actually care, and he literally admits it here. Um, and it makes his whole thing with Burke Shields, which I feel like even the I feel like he's being emotionally honest, but is not being relationally honest about 
the disconnect he had with Brooke Shields. Mm -hmm. I get the impression, um, I get the impression uh, upon reflection that Brooke Shields thinks that Agassiz, at least during this time period, was being extremely fake with her. That he was putting on something because he doesn't have anything to fall back on. Like he's not a real person in this moment. Yeah. Um, and I, I, he tries to play that off as her what's, being cold and associating oh, with see, her what's actor funny, friends. I know, but what I actually associated that with, and it has nothing to do with Agassi not being like that, but she's also a fucking empty actress with no substance either. So, like, there's really nowhere well, to meet. We only well, really no, get his perspective that, That's on the it. thing. I think yeah. that's him hedging it because she clearly has other friends. She's with them all the time. Yeah, well, that's, she, she, you know, she is like a totally... Well, she's okay with, like, the image part. Like, she wants to be fucking seen, where he's, like, needs to be seen but doesn't want to be seen because he, he needs to be popular and loved and needs his space. And, oh, my God, I'm so fucking tormented. <laughs> yeah, I, I just think, I think, I think Brooke gets a raw deal in this. Like, I, I feel like she is unfairly represented. Like, I, I think she is, not, if not down to earth, I think she is a realer person than we're led to believe in okay. this narrative. I don't know. I, I think it's pretty clear that this is Andre's perspective on her. Um, I don't think well, that. Well, sure. But, I, but in a book where he has the, <laughs> he has the capacity to reminisce about what's going on, well, the, he is quite unfair to her. Well, and, but the thing is, it's also, I think that's also deliberate because it fits the fucking narrative so nicely to, you know, so you start building up the fact that there's a rift there and then you're like, oh, and then I should have never married her is what I'm all implying here and that we were already coming, you know, it fits the narrative like so well to just show how he was so wrong about all of this, you know, um, I just I I, under, I understand wanting to be in character yeah. to like represent his mental state, which is important throughout the book. They could have at least hinted that maybe she wasn't like being completely frozen for no reason. Like I I feel like she it, she does not come across well in the way that this is written. No, well, yeah. She, I mean, she comes. It, her her relationship with the people that she meets on set in TV is specifically friends. Yeah. But, like, that that comes across as a betrayal, and it doesn't come across as, like, a knowing in retrospect, I realize. It comes across as a, as a full realization that this is the way things are to him. And it get, maybe, maybe memoirs are just written this way, and that's fine and whatever. I don't read fiction, so I will never know. But... Again, I don't want to harp on it for much longer because it's not—it's not terribly material. Um, I just—I think Agassi is for for all of the brazenness he has in this book. I don't think the fact that he can be that he is being completely honest about how he feels about this makes what he's saying honest inherently. At least when it comes to the way other people actually are, um, his on a rush stuff, I can believe more candidly because the thing is he, he's clearly not good at making friends no that's that's one of the things i really noticed working through this the the second time is yeah i mean his little entourage is like literally the only people he associates with yeah and the press also picks him picks on him for that the fact that he's got this posse that he travels with and the 
The thing is, it feels like he doesn't understand why the press is prodding him about that. It's not the fact that he has like four close people. It's that he has nobody else. Yeah. Like he doesn't talk, like he's not friends with any tennis players, right. as far as I can tell. Like he, he makes, he, he does not befriend anyone in no, his No, there's sport. only references really to doing anything social with two people. Like he does one social thing with Pete Sampras and it's like lukewarm. Yeah. And then he, like, there's one reference to him going to dinner with uh, McEnroe when he was dating Tatum O'Neill. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. that's it. That's the, <laughs> in, the, in, in, like, a 20-year career. Like, you don't, you don't have to like tennis to be able to talk to other people in your sport. <laughs> like, there's no way it's that cold across the board. Because you're not, you're in direct competition with these people, but you're not in, like, head-to-head contact. You'd pass notes with somebody. Some people do criticize the men's tour for being too friendly now. Because Federer and Nadal are just like there buddies. Was, yeah, and, yeah. Well, then you Djokovic change everything to basically like a, like a respect been, culture and everyone's yeah. just cool. Yeah. But that's that's how it would be. Among no, it, it, it actually, it may very well have been like that here, too. It's just, we just that don't Agassi know. is the one who is shitty at making friends and reaching out to people and being sociable. And that was... One of the things he talks about with the the Brooke relationship is because she actually did want to go out and do things that he just wanted to sit with his same four friends and, you know, hang out with with them because and that's literally what he spent his life doing. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't help that the other tennis players, the other American tennis players um, just weren't similar to him at all, like. Mcenroe and Connors are both assholes. <laughs> um, Courier was an asshole earlier. Well, in his Courier, he had like a, he has like, rivalry started with him when he was like four. Yeah. So and then Chang, know, of course, he talks he about hated, being like he a hated Chang. religious nut. Not <laughs> yeah. And this this um, like they they go through many many tennis matches in this thing, like talking about the psychology across the board. But he doesn't. He never brings personal. Oh no! It's robotic. To it. It's always. It yeah. is always. Brad is telling him something about these players because he doesn't like he doesn't even know who they are. Like yeah. he, he even Sampras, he tell he talks about how he doesn't understand Sampras. Yeah, like, he doesn't understand how he's so driven to to win all the majors that he did, um, and and keep playing tennis. Nor and, is he interested enough to find out. No, he doesn't like, seem yeah. seem to be. I will bet that if Agassi said, "Yo, you want to hang out?" Pete would not decline that. <laughs> I feel like this is. Completely Agassi, not wanting to open up. Because, I mean, in in Voluntary Academy, I mean, he talks about, you know, he's got rivals and all these people that he meets. He doesn't befriend anybody. Like, he he befriends his brother. He befriends That one rich kid, Perry. And that was when he was, like, 13. The the former minister. Yeah. Yeah. Like, straight. Gil and BG. And he's even only, he's only had three coaches his whole life. He had his dad. BG well, Nick carried him for like a like a decade. Well, Nick was almost like an extension of his dad. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and then he had Brian or uh, Darren Cahill like yeah. right at the end. Right. I mean, do people people well, being, oh, go Cahill. through coaches every three weeks? Like, <laughs> I, 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 <laughs> yeah, I didn't realize how long Brad Gilbert was his coach. It was a long time. Yeah. Like Gilbert literally quit his professional career and went mm-hmm. right into coaching Agassi for yeah. almost over a decade. And it's funny because all the Brad Gilbert sections in the book where it's like his dialogue, it sounds exactly like Brad Gilbert when he's doing commentary for there was a, ESPN. There was a great moment in Brad 
Gilbert commentary recently at the U.S. Open where he made a Blink-182 joke <laughs> to one of the old, old, old commentators right. of the thing, and the guy did not understand <laughs> it at not. all. Yep. And it was... I was just like, oh, what a stuffy, weird, bizarre sport. <laughs> and, and it is interesting to me that he and Brad Yobert got along so well for so long because they don't seem similar at all. Yeah, Gilbert's a very in-your-face kind of guy, and he's yeah. so, like, high energy. Yep. He's very smothering. He is. Agassiz. <laughs> and he just, he, he loves punk. sports and pop culture yeah, and everything yeah. that Agassiz doesn't like. Yeah. yeah. Well, Agassiz doesn't like anything. What is his music interest? Barry Manilow? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And then Stephanie gets him into Annie Lennox, like, in his 30s. He doesn't watch TV. He likes horror movies. Yeah. And that's it. That's, yeah. like, the only interests he has. He doesn't even have, like, interests. Mm-hmm. No, because he's, he's too busy being mad about everything. Yeah. To, like, enjoy anything. Yeah, basically. Well, oh, and he likes fast food. He does. Yeah. Who does? As, yeah, that was, that Federer, was, probably. You know, Federer probably doesn't eat fast food, but um, no, but that was a big that was a big thing with Ag- just knowing about him peripherally through the eighties. Um, he used to complain at the French Open because there was no fast food to eat, and he didn't like having to eat the food out there. So, like that was a big issue for him. I mean, it it's an interesting. He wasn't. He didn't have a childhood really. His childhood was tennis. Yeah, yeah and, and that really hurts your development as an adult. Yeah. Like, Oh, I mean, yeah. you look at other, it's a thing with child actors and child performers and, and everything. Well, that's, I so get many why he got along up, with Brooke initially on yeah, that front. Yeah. I mean, so many of them end up just messed up just from the, the whole yeah. experience of having fame that early and just not having a life outside of your your. Well, and there's a thing, I guess, like, you know, whatever age you are that you make your first million, like, you never really developmentally get past that age. So if you, if that happens to you when you're really young, you, you know, you're always just like a retarded teenager. Michael Jackson. Mark Zuckerberg. (laughs) I mean, this you make your first Harvard, I think is probably about where that happens for people like that. But it's, it, again, it's the moral hazard of this thing is that we're supposed to have and this is actually weird because this isn't something DFW really hits on. Like Tracy Austin. Um, she might legitimately be retarded. But, the, and that's what made her so good. Yeah. Is, the, is that monomaniacal yeah. uh, no, I scheme think she, to her. She may actually be retarded. Scheme to her life. And she has, and, and she fell and she did permanently disable herself very rapidly. Um, mm-hmm. It's the thing that DFW doesn't tackle because he's too busy talking about how stupid she is <laughs> is it like what what are we supposed to bring out of this because you buy the book because Agassi is a famously good tennis player like he's a spectacular athlete in some capacity so what are you supposed to get out of the book and what is he supposed to be able to say by the end of it to either humanize himself or to bring perspective to it or to give you a vision of what it's like to be a true. He does not give you the, to quote DFW, to, to hold up that number one finger and mean it. He doesn't give you that at all. No. And that's, and that's the thing. That's why people read sports biographies because they want to know what it's like to be so physically gifted at something because us people who are not physically gifted at something like we want to know what that's like because we hold that in awe but the people that have those gifts a they can't explain it anyways 
and B, it's usually at a loss for like other qualities that ends up making them somebody that we can't relate to enough anyways to even understand that. And this is why I question how much, if if at all, he really hates tennis late in life. So you think in the book, by the time it gets to the last half, he's he's married Stephanie Graf, he's had a kid, and his back is destroyed. And after that, he keeps playing tennis. And his the the excuse that he gives or the reason that he gives is to um, have money for his school and for his entourage and everybody else and, and for his family. Um, but at that point, he's already really wealthy. He has enough connections that he can keep raising money for the school. Like, he doesn't need to keep playing tennis at that point. He could have retired at 29, um, like right after Stephanie Graf did, and yep. he, would have been, he would have been set for life. He, he didn't have to do it. Um, but he keeps playing, and I don't know. From the passages there, I, it, it's hard for me to accept that he still hated tennis at that point in his life, or, or maybe he just accepted that that's the only thing that he's good at. But the fact that he was torturing himself so much, even after that point, and, and got back to number one and won a couple more majors yeah. after that point, I, I, I don't know. It's just hard for me to believe. Well, I haven't heard him in any press junkets, so I don't have anything to go on for this. But the fact that in the heat of the moment, he's never able to admit it, it that does seem like a tell. Yeah. Like, that seems weird. And it's it's possible to philosophically hate something um, and then in the moment, like it, you know, just come to despise something in retrospect. That's, that's, I mean, a, he, that's a totally he, reasonable thing. And he admits he likes the perfection. He likes the, the feeling of hitting a tennis ball perfectly. He likes uh, winning a match that he's played well, not necessarily a match that he's, that he's kind of half-assed through and then won anyway because he was better. But So, um, so what does he hate then? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that's, so. my, that's my thought. Now, it's like... Like yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, is it just a I retrograde? Mean, ra- uh, is it just a retrograde self hatred? That's like, what I mean. It's is it just a you know like I or a hatred of the childhood? That yeah, he that's lost, what I mean. The fact like, that he doesn't have an education and everything because he's been pushed into tennis. Yeah, it's just like an um, fu dad type of type yeah. of scenario. Like he hates that his dad pushed him into it. Like maybe it's just like residual childhood trauma or he just hates that that's what he's known for being because he didn't choose it or you know like there's there's a lot of ways to you know step back and hate what it is but but like you said the fact that he can in fact whether whether he cares about being number one or not like he you know he talks about not caring about the atf ratings um but that's not that's not tennis that's around tennis that's the periphery of tennis that's not actually playing the game right and the thing he never, ever, ever, ever rebels at is playing the game. He never once stops playing a game that he starts, I don't think. Like, he's mm-hmm. once he's on the field, I mean, he doesn't, he, I don't think he ever rebels at Voluntary Academy by not playing. No, he doesn't. No. And even in the, is it the very last chapter of the book where he's, where they're, no, he just uh, where he off plays the that course. match in the rain against uh, Stephanie Graf, the first match that he played in a couple years. And yeah, talks about how he wanted to keep playing to to play against. Yeah, it, it, is it just like that? It's the only thing he can do. So once he starts playing, he just needs to keep playing, or is it that he doesn't really hate it? I, I don't know. I, it, I, I well, like I, I think said, it's that he he hates that he's. I, I think it is that he hates that he's defined by it. Like and I think again with the Voluntary Academy, it's it's not where he made his first million, but as <laughs> rather than the uh, the million mantra, I go with the one where whatever you did in high school, 
uh, prepares you for what you will do for the rest of your life. Uh, because no matter what you happen to do in high school, it will accidentally be what you do for the rest of your life. Um, and in this case, high school for him was being in that academy. What he dyed his hair, got an earring, did all this bullshit, yeah, and he, played tennis the whole time. That's what I mean. He'd still like even when he was rebelling, so he'd show up on the court and wear jeans, or he'd show <laughs> up on the court and have a pink mohawk. But he still showed up on the court. Yeah, yeah. he wanted to be something other than a tennis player, but he he had to keep playing tennis. Like he, the one thing he would not compromise on is playing the game. Yeah, yeah. he would always do that. And it seems like throughout the book, even like earlier in his career when he was rebelling, as as you say, um, he would get mad at himself for playing poor matches. Oh, yeah, and I don't think himself you, up. And if you don't time. care about tennis, if you don't like tennis, I don't think you can be angry at yourself for, for playing a poor match. Like, losing is one thing, but being angry because you played a poor match. Yeah, why would you care thing. if yeah. you didn't like it? Well, and, yeah. and why would like, you spend half of your memoir... Going just into the absolute gritty detail of – this is another thing. I, I'm only doing this by hearsay is that um, DFW talks about the way that Austin sort of like tosses off her accomplishments. Mm -hmm. it, we hear about almost every match point that matters to him in his whole life. Like it's clear if, if Agassi didn't want to talk about it. Whoever this ghostwriter was wouldn't have written about it because he wouldn't have had the material. Agassi clearly talked to this guy about those matches in excruciating Extreme detail. detail. Yeah. Yeah. That's telling. <laughs> yeah. I think so. Well, evidently, I, I just found, actually, I just found the article. Um, so evidently, when they started this ghostwriting process, that was the first thing he talked about was all the matches in excruciating detail. And then it took a while to get under the surface and get like some, you know, story about them. So, I mean, he seems to have like a preternatural fucking like memory for every point he played on the court. Mm -hmm. He tries to act like that's just some sort of bullshit he's not in control of either because right in the beginning of the book, he says that, you know, he never forgets everything. So everything goes in and nothing goes out, um, you know, but he, he acts like that's like some woe is me because then he goes into his horrible childhood as though he's so tortured by remembering all this. I don't know. Maybe oh, it's, it's a humble brag. Yeah. <laughs> like, like it's not a, yeah. If only I, I you know, if I, mean, I ever I, have to write this memoir, it will not be anywhere near this detailed. This <laughs> man remembers a lot of things that. If he, you know, if he was of the type to selectively forget things, he would. He's not. He's not. Yeah. It certainly doesn't come across that way. Or if he selectively forgets things, they're not tennis related. Quote. Where's his first name? My father likes to shoot the hawks with his rifle. Our house is blanketed with his victims. Dead birds that cover the roof as thickly as tennis balls over the court. My, my father says he doesn't like hawks because they swoop down on mice and other defenseless desert creatures. That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> no, it does. It's a fucking, <laughs> it's war trauma from being an Iranian citizen. Okay, that, yeah, that, I guess, makes defenseless sense. Defenseless desert creatures? There's a reason they live in Las Vegas. Yeah. That's my reason. So then he's just anyway. projecting all of this trauma onto his... Onto his son. But then they have it wrap it up so nicely at that last U.S. Open where his dad is pleading for him to retire. It's like, oh, didn't this wrap up so nicely? <laughs> I get, again, I think there's – I don't think Agassi is being dishonest 
I think he is portraying this as honestly as he knows how. Yeah. I just think that that isn't the whole truth. Okay. I think he is lying to himself. This is J.R. Moringer, M-O-E-H-R-I-N-G-E-R. He is supposedly a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, um, but that was the individual that ghost wrote this book. Okay. I won't besmirch the honor of this. Uh, I'm sure it was a good paycheck. He did, well, I, it was he fine. Did, he did a perfectly good job writing it was this. Fine. Book. Yeah. Yeah. It's I a good book. Hate it. Yeah. Yeah. Like, no I mean, no it's, quotations. No quotations. Yeah. Plus quotation marks. Quotation marks. Yeah. No, I mean this. This could have. This could have been even worse. Like <laughs> this could have been really bad. I'm not. I'm not quite in that camp. I'll no, give. No. I'll give this a C. I. I don't hate having read this book. I think there's plenty. There's plenty where it, I would not read another four. No, that yeah. See, that's I what need I need. One of these. That's that's one what I mean. More sports. Yeah, I don't need more okay. sports memoirs. I need okay. this one. Yeah, like, that's what I mean. Fun. This is yeah. this is a totally acceptable sports. I'm I'm just poo pooing it because the genre in general is pretty bad. But I mean, if you have to pick one sports memoir, really, you could do worse. Yeah. <laughs> like you could do worse. Yeah. Um, Are you going to read another one, Mitchell? I mean. Maybe <laughs> if do you, I find do one you that follow like. any other sports? Um, I follow basketball a little bit, not as much as I used to. Okay, mostly tennis now. Mostly just tennis. Yeah. Well, you don't need books for that because NBA players have like lives outside of their sports, so you can they just do. follow them around. Yeah, the camera's always on them. Shaq, man, I was so basketball's hoping. not as hard a sport as tennis to play. <laughs> eh. I was so hoping Shaq was gonna become the new Papa John spokesperson. Is he not? I, I, if it's in the works, I haven't heard. I've seen him in commercials for it. What? Yeah, but I want him to rebrand. Mm. I want it to be Papa Shaq's. Papa Shaq. Okay. Yeah. Like, he's cl- he's got so much more star power. Just give it to him. Yeah. He, can turn that, he can turn that franchise around. Agassiz just got an academy of some kind. Mm-hmm. I know. He, he was desperate that he... he got his lawyer friend to ne- basically give him a way to negotiate out of going to school. And now he spends all his time forcing kids to go to school. Know, Here's Okay. Worse. So that's one of the things we miss here. I, I know education is important. Yada, yada, yada. <laughs> but if you're going to be number one at a sport, quit school when you're 12. Don't waste your time. You do not become Roger Federer going to school. That's correct. End of story. Which is another tell that Agassi probably actually likes tennis and is in denial about a lot of this. Well, Roger Federer is a weird case because he was not forced into tennis by his parents. No, he played a variety of sports. So did yeah. Nadal. Nadal didn't he only play tennis. And, he played yeah. soccer and stuff. And then you They're European though. They all play soccer. Yeah. Well then you Nadal and then, looks like a fucking soccer player too. I think I think Nadal and Serena would have made excellent MMA fighters as well. No. Um those two specifically. But yeah. you also, I mean this speaking of all of these random child prodigies, I, they do all love the sport they play in a very intrinsic way. You know, like Tiger Woods uh, talks th- about this. His dad is like, if Tiger didn't want to play golf, this wouldn't have happened. Yeah. Like, and, and even uh, Agassiz's dad tries mm-hmm. to indoctrinate all his kids into this, and only one of them Only, yeah, yeah. And if you look at other top tennis players, Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, Murray, they all like tennis. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's what I mean. They played They're a few sports and then they kind of specialized into in into tennis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they find the one they like the most and they don't actively hate it the whole time. Well, that's I guess that's yeah, you cuz you can't yeah, you can't play something at that high a level if you if you don't like it. And the thing is, you have to like 
I, I would imagine that if you're that good at something, you have to at least like the accomplishment of being that good at anything. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that has to be rewarding at some level. No, because otherwise you can. There is a way out. Agassi pretends like he had no way out. There's absolutely a way out. All of his other siblings had that way out. You just suck. You do something else. Yeah. You just you, do you bad just be a normal person. your dad gives up on you. Yeah. He did that once. Didn't work. Yeah, for like a second, <laughs> yeah. and then he was right back in it. Like, yeah, yeah it's no, I, I I agree with you. I don't I don't buy it. I think he absolutely enjoys tennis and yeah. has just abstracted what that word means in such a way that he can claim not to like it. Yeah, I think he enjoys hitting the ball. Yeah, even if he's scared of the dragon. <laughs> Aren't Listen, we, all scared we were all scared of things as kids. <laughs> no. Scared of all sorts of weird stuff. Most of us didn't have souped-up ball machines shooting balls at uh, no, so like 100 I, miles an hour. Did. What if we did? I feel I feel <laughs> jipped, to be oh, honest no, right? with you. Like, my parents didn't expose me to tennis. Yeah. Oh, man. That is one of the only sports I didn't play as a kid. I, I was I was carted through all of them, and I hated all of them. Yeah, yeah, and no, I mean, I discovered tennis basically on my own in 2005 uh, when a family member was sick in bed who liked tennis and I sat and watched the whole Australian Open in 2005 I immediately Safin won that one. Oh boy did he yeah. um <laughs> yeah he beat he beat uh Andre in that one yep. um but I immediately attached to Nadal my aunt who I was watching it wish because I don't know who the hell that is I've never seen him before and I'm like that guy <laughs> and it turned out to be correct she yeah. wouldn't have swore well, she she was just like, I'm not familiar with. And then she said he looked like an Indian. She's like, what's with that dark skin and the keep? He looks like a, you know, like a Indian. That's what she said, actually. I know I had played some That's tennis as a kid, but the first match I remember watching was the Federer Nadal Wimbledon. Okay. Uh, in 08. That was a good one. Yeah. That's when I got Lou into tennis. But that was like we one of the, the first big. In 2006. Hey, yeah. Lou, how's it going? Howdy. <laughs> <laughs> He's not been here the whole time. He just sat back down. Uh, anything else we want to cover? We got through most of it. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, U.S. Open was good this year. Because Nadal was. won at 33. Yep. He's amazing, as he always. amazing. It was a good match. Yeah. Medvedev is a fun player to watch. Yeah, so. and then Medvedev learned that he is going to have to suffer real hard if he wants to pass that threshold of yep. winning a Grand Slam. He almost pulled it out. You know, oh, it, was, now, it got close it there. No one comes back from two sets down against Nadal in the final, and he almost did. Nadal does get annoying with his delaying the server, oh, he though. Was, he was delaying Medvedev's server. He was. Yeah. Which is, that was the, yeah. I was giving, I was, uh, I was kind of annoyed. I'm talking mm-hmm. loud so the microphone can pick it up. Yeah, that's fine. I, I was annoyed that the ref was, the umpire was giving him so much shit for, for, for taking his time on his serve. Yep. I was just like, come on, have you not seen Nadal serve? The guy could consistently he takes, so much time. takes more time than he should. Yep. But whatever. But, yeah, when he was putting his hands up during Medvedev serves. Like, yeah, now your yeah. opponent's playing too fast for you. Yeah, because yeah. that's, a, that's a tactic. Yeah. People are like, fuck it, it. If, we can, if we can catch Nadal mid-tick, yep. you know? You're supposed to play to the server's pace, and yeah, yeah. they let him uh, let him slow it down. You know, and that was set. not Nadal's best game. I mean, he really had to grind. He really had to play into that match because yeah. he was beating him. He was 
playing just well enough that Medvedev could catch up with him those first two sets, but he was The first by set far, was very low quality. Yeah, by far. He, <laughs> the last set was really good. Yeah, like his serve finally started getting more consistent, but his serve was terrible those first two sets. He was playing basically just well enough to, well, to scrape by, and then Medvedev stepped it up. It wasn't yeah. towards the end of the third that Medvedev really said, okay, I gotta do something. Yeah. And that something... And it was almost too late sets. by the time he got moving. Yeah, well, he, you know, he picked up that third and fourth. It reminds me of a uh, of an Agassi. There's a highlight of Federer against Agassi, and I don't remember what match this is from. Um, but Agassi hits like three amazing shots that should all be winners, and Federer just gets them all back and hits the most ridiculous lob winner off of it. And Agassi just kind of looks at him with just a completely blank expression on his face, and uh, it's mostly unreadable. You can't tell whether he's just disappointed in himself or. Just Federer amazed at Federer. Them, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He, yeah. He, he used to do this amazing, like early on, he'd do this amazing thing where he'd do like a slice shot and the ball would literally like land on the net and just roll over the oh. other side, which it's kind of considered a faux pas. Like you're not really supposed to hit shots like that. Dude, if I they're did impossible tennis to return, professionally, you would try you to only do that shot. I would only no. practice that shot. No. Like, the net shot. Because you, cause you can't return it. Yeah, so every that's, time that's some, an auto winner. Yeah, so no. every time someone does it, they're like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. But dude, no. Federer used to do that. Like, oh, had that at least one time in, in, in like every match. There'd no. be that where you're just like, oh, oh, it, it's not even returnable. Like, yeah. what are you supposed to do? The slife right there. Yeah, no, I will gladly apologize well, my way to the gold. Yeah, unfortunately, <laughs> we did not have uh, trophy parents that pushed us into tennis, and we, we, you know, we're all suffering oh, for that. Hey, that's 30. one more. Uh, I got six good years. Yeah, apparently, that's one more thing I wanted to bring up is how Agassi does talk about how he enjoyed doing the Davis Cup and the Olympics because in those, it's not just an individual event, but you're oh, playing the, why, with a team or why, for your why, country. Why? Team, yeah. team, 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 team. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean. If he had if he come at it in a constructive way, I would have empathized with him more because, yes, I think that the coach, just like in a fight where, you know, you fight your round by yourself, but in your little break in between rounds, you can't talk to your coaches. Like, let them have their coach on, like, the changeovers and give them a pep talk. Like, that would be cool, but They allow still, that in, in WTA on non- Grand Slams yeah, in regular yeah. WTA events. So, like, I mean, I, I, I see the utility of being able to talk to someone, but don't just, like, whine about it. Offer constructive criticism, like ways that the sports could be improved so that this yeah. isn't a problem. I mean, I, tennis is a lonely sport. I mean, I like I like being a you're just out there by yourself. Some people but don't. I'm, a lot of sports are very lonely. Like, endurance running is a fucking lonely sport. It is. <laughs> yeah. But I think other other like there aren't very many other sports that are that are like tennis in, in their the caliber well, of but how I much guess they're paid that are like thing. that. Like even golf, you don't really have a team. Well, you yeah. have you have a you have a caddy and you have a person that you're playing with, even yeah. though you're you're rivals. You're like next to them and and walking with them between holes and I mean, stuff. Tennis so. has a team too. It's just an individual sport in application. You know what yeah. I mean? Like when you go to apply what you've been training for, mm -hmm. you're out there on your own. and You gotta perform. No. But I mean, there's that MMA is like that, golf is like that. Like I said, any kind of endurance yeah. sport well, is. Especially yeah. endurance sports. Because if you look at like 
even something like, like the, Olympic triathlons or, or the, something. Uh, or the Tour de France. Tour de France. Yeah, yeah. you're out well, by yourself actually, for a long time. cycling is a team sport. It's, it's almost a, odd that they have individual a, winners at the end of races. Well, it's very yeah. much a team sport, but that's just to help get bring one person mm-hmm. to the end. So, But it's still, when you go to, like, train... Outside of having, I guess, in the professional sport, uh, professional circuits, it's more communication and everything with between each other. But when you're, if you're just into cycling, like there's not much of a team. Yeah, like, you're out there for six hours by yourself, essentially. Even if you're riding with someone, a lot of times there's hours or an hour or two that go by of just silence. You know? Yeah. Well, that that tennis in in that way is kind of similar to endurance sports. There aren't very other many sports that you're out there so long by yourself. Like a tennis match Absolutely. could be five hours, yeah, Absolutely. where you don't That's, talk to anybody. Yeah, I think things I do like about tennis, I like the open time format. Like the I match is going to last yeah. as long as the match needs to last. Yeah. And on a funny note, the about it's not a team sport. Like Agassi, it he didn't even have hitting partners. Like who did he practice tennis with? <laughs> Brad. Yeah. yeah, he mentioned, like, BG. one time he met somebody, like, in the morning to go hit a couple of balls with. But the entire time, like, like other people have, like, they have doubles partners. They have hitting partners mm-hmm. that they work with. Like, he, none of that. I think, I think. All weaknesses. I think Agassi's uh, mental condition. I recognize those shoes. Kapaths. Hey. You're late. So you guys gonna bust in in the middle of a podcast? Oh yeah. To, I got a message saying it was fucking over. This podcast is over. This is, <laughs> this is all aftermath. We've been done with the book for five minutes. So. Sorry, I think Sorry, I think yeah. all of the shit no, he writes about and all of his problems, like like you said, he enjoyed Davis Cup but didn't like the tours, things like that. It all just illustrates how like insecure he is. It's yeah. all stemming from his insecure. inability yeah. to it connect does. with people on a different level. Like, maybe the Davis Cup was nice because, you know, that particular experience had a group of people he could gel with, and it was camaraderie, that's great, but he doesn't strike me as the type of guy to have enough confidence just to be like, yeah, let's go hit some balls together. He's just a punk. Yeah. (laughs) He's a fucking punk. With his hair or his no hair. Or his earrings. His earrings, yeah. Ryan, what do you think about tennis? And Agassi, specifically. Agassi specifically, he takes tiny steps. He's a tiny step taker. And yes. I don't trust a tiny step taker at all. No. No, can't trust him. Huh. A little shuffler, a little yep. shuffle yep. to the baseline. Mm-hmm. That's utterly fair. Yeah. I mean, it's just by, it's just from my, the outward appearance of it as well. And uh, to be honest with you, um, preferred Sampras. Always preferred Sampras. Well, and Sampras usually won. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I, love his, I love a good serve and volley. Yep. And, uh, yeah. And Sampras didn't hate tennis. Yes, no. <laughs> or himself. Or himself. <laughs> or his father. <laughs> or mostly himself, yeah. as I think we've surmised by now, concluded. Uh, all right, let's shut this thing down. Let's play a game. Let's do some bullshit. Mitchell, Nicole, David, Lou, Ryan for four seconds. Thanks for being part of the Magnation Log. Thanks for having us. Woo-hoo. Good morning.